Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, thank you for stopping by again. I'm Anna. And I'm Emily. And this is Murderer's Night Out. Oh, and by the way, it's Super Bowl Sunday and... Yep, we're in a fucking closet. Let's be realistic here. You know what? Starting from the bottom here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording now, so... <laughs> well, good. good. Uh, anyways, sorry, we were just laughing at each other because uh, apparently I had started recording a second ago and I had not unmuted the mics and then I was interrupted by my 10 year old asking about a picture and I'm like really kid yeah this that's what you wanted to ask me right now that was hashtag mom life I swear (laughs) but anyways uh thank you guys so much for all the great feedback that we had yesterday when we released our first episode I mean really it was just an introduction to kind of get people you know talking and letting them know hey we're getting ready to you know release some episodes and we hadn't even planned to record today with it you know it being Super Bowl Sunday but I woke up this morning and I saw all the great feedback all of the people that were so excited to listen and it really just motivated me that I really dove hard into the case or into the case I had originally picked um but ended up finding another case that really caught my attention. But before we get into that, Emily, how are you feeling this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm excited. And, you know, thanks again, because, you know, we we really appreciate everybody and, you know, everybody being so supportive of us. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, and we mentioned the fact that... Um, we are currently in a closet right now uh, because I'm still kind of working on, I guess you could call it the pod lab. And um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, no echoing and we're, we're doing the best we can here. This (laughs) is what we got. We wanted to, to deliver to our wonderful listeners, the best audio quality that we could. So yeah, we are currently sitting in my closet on Super Bowl Sunday here to deliver words of horrific events and might to you. I add Anna is a sociopath okay these clothes are color coordinated okay 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 first off to be fair <laughs> I did not do this when we first moved in we had a girl come over and she kind of because I'm gonna be honest with y'all I am not the best when it comes to organization so we had a girl come over shout out to amy jones if you happen to ever listen to this come over and as we were unpacking she organized a lot of our our stuff thus color coordinating our clothes and that was the easy part to keep up with the rest of the shit she organized thank you again um it's not very organized anymore you know (laughs) hashtag mom life so here we are when you work a full-time job it's hard to it's so hard to keep everything organized. I'm sure everyone else could, you know, they can understand and get it. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to all my full-time working moms and parents. and Y'all are doing the damn thing. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we're doing the damn thing. Everybody else is doing the damn thing. It's hard. Hell yeah. Anyways, I was originally researching another case when I came across 
this one. And I just I dove straight in and I was like, holy shit, I'm so surprised I had never heard of it. And it's I mean, it's semi recent. It's not like last year in the last five years, but 2008. And I mean, I was almost an adult then. So I mean, you know, we were probably getting drunk passed out in the field at this point <laughs> i mean to be honest yeah that's that's probably true but we won't speak about that Mm-mm. i am a sophisticated and tax-paying individual now yes damn it so there's really no easy way to transition into this case so i'm just gonna go ahead and start uh, our case takes place in 2008 And it is known as the Lester Street Mass Murders. Have you ever heard of it, Emily? No, I have not. I have not heard it. Well, it's a grisly one. Um, So, trigger warning, I want to say this does involve children. So, if that's not your thing, I totally understand. Uh, But I just wanted to give that news, news flash or... You know, that little warning there in case you want to skip or go to the next episode. Also, this uh, episode is going, this case is going to be a two-parter because even though it was solved pretty quickly, this was, there was a lot to unpack here. Um, And so, and this wasn't even my original case. As I said before, I was actually looking at something else when this one popped up and caught my attention. And yeah, it was... uh, it was a hard one. So our case starts uh, March 3rd, 2008. An officer was dispatched to a home located at 722 Lester Street in Memphis. And for those of you are that are from the area, it is around the Memphis Zoo area. And if you're not from the area, well, hey, we just gave you an idea where it's at. So when the officer entered the home he had discovered the bodies of six deceased victims. Four of them were adults, two were children, and then three other victims, three children in critical condition. Days later after the attack, one of the survivors awoke and was ready to tell his tale. So our case centers around the Dotson family. Priscilla Shaw and Jesse Dotson Sr. were married in 1972. Priscilla was just 15, and Jesse Sr. was 19. Soon after, they were married. Sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. That's a young time to get married. Oh, man. Look, I didn't even know what was... I didn't even know my ass from my head back then, but, you know, back... I say back then, like, I was born in 1972. But at back that then, age, I'm sure that was pretty common back then. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a different time. But um, soon after they were married, they had a daughter named Nicole. Senior, shortly after, joined the Army and ended up being stationed in Florida, where a son, Jesse Dotson Jr., was born in December of 1974. At some point, Priscilla, it, it wasn't real clear in the research um, about, a, you know, a definite time. But at some point, Priscilla and Nicole had left Florida to come back to Memphis. And during that time, Nicole had fell extremely ill and it resulted in Jesse Sr. 
leaving the base to come to Memphis. Apparently it was unauthorized and he was later disciplined for it. And FYI, I got a lot of my information from court documents. And as far as this particular portion of our story goes, the court docs weren't really clear about, um, like I said earlier, when all this occurred or if Jesse Jr., the younger brother, was even born yet. So I'm not sure because I was asking, well, where's Jesse? If Priscilla and Nicole left and, you know, Sr. came later back to Memphis, where's Jr.? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, anyways, after three years of being in the Army, Sr. was honorably discharged. He wanted to remain in Florida and wanted the family to remain in Florida, but he was unable to uh, obtain employment. Employment, So the uh, family ended up returning to Memphis. After the return to Memphis, Cecil Dotson was born, which was there's Nicole, then there's Jesse Jr., then Cecil Dotson. The kids started experiencing some difficulties earlier in life. And they really started that at some point after the return to Memphis, um, Priscilla had gone on a church trip to New Orleans, later returning with a boyfriend. Oh. Yeah. And stating that she no longer wanted to be with Senior. They remained married for an unspecified amount of time after the incident, but according to a mitigation specialist, and this this history came from this mitigation specialist named Glory Shettles and her investigation. Um, her investigation further revealed that Priscilla and Senior often argued and that Senior was often physically abusive to Priscilla on several occasions and in front of the children. I'm uh, Jesse Jr. was the age of six and Cecil was three, Nicole approximately eight. Uh, their mom actually decided she was going to leave senior and saved the money to do so. And this is a really fucked Good up for part. Good for her though. Good for her because it is so hard to leave situations like that. I agree, but man, wait till you get to, wait till I tell you this next part. Okay. This is kind of fucked up. Um, you know, I don't know all the details of the situation and I get... I, I do not condone physical abuse. However, Senior had returned home one day to discover that Priscilla and all three children were gone. Yeah. And he had had no contact, zero contact from Pris Priscilla for about or until about four or five months later. And apparently the children had no idea where their father was or what had happened. So that's a little, that's a little crazy. I mean, I guess. I mean, did the physical abuse happen prior to her leaving or did it happen after her leaving? That's my question. No, it was, it was happening during their marriage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the children had witnessed it. Okay. So she. I, mean, I kind of can't blame her. Yeah. And I'm just I mean, saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. I, would I just can't. my shit and leave. Yeah. I'm I, just saying. Yeah. I agree. I just couldn't imagine being that child, like, you know, not knowing where my dad was yeah. or what happened, you know, to my father, I guess playing but, devil's advocate I, over here. Yeah. 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 Um, after that, apparently Priscilla and the children moved around a lot. Jesse Jr. Was 
ended up being diagnosed with a learning disability in reading and math. He began having disciplinary problems at home and at school. Uh, Some of the school mental health records noted that he was provided with individual counseling um, and that counselors often tried to meet with Priscilla, but she would either cancel or not attend. Junior, Jesse Junior, ended up failing fourth grade twice, and most of them were due to excessive absences. And this is really sad. So the absences were later described by Miss Shettles, the mitigation specialist, that they were a result of being bullied and teased from other students that Jesse Jr. Jesse Jr. had experienced that because of his clothing. Apparently his clothes were oh, yeah. I'm sure he might have not been very clean. I I not, don't know. I don't know. I mean that's just that's just that's if just she's re- a single mom that's yeah. not in her life. You know what I mean? There's yeah. no spouse, it's just her doing it. That's really fucking sad, though. It's very sad. Just all around fucking sad. And then by the time Jesse Jr. was 15 and Cecil was 12 and Nicole was 17, 18-ish, Jr. had already had many arrests and juvenile court appearances. His mom attended them often, but when she couldn't attend, his sister Nicole stepped in in her place. So by the age of 16, he had actually quit school. And at that point, he had only had an eighth grade education and had moved to 10 different schools. That's a lot. Yeah. So it's a lot to, a lot of, a lot of moving around, a lot of, um, I guess you could say traumatic experiences and just stability which i mean i get and then the poverty level in memphis like you know we have some of the richest people there and we have some of the poorest people there so i mean if if you're a young kid you've experienced domestic violence from your father figure who's supposed to be there for you um i mean it's a cycle it's a cycle it is a cycle it's and it's a very sad cycle and not many people break it Miss Shettles had described one major incident um, where she said, you know, the mom, she was often not home. And so Nicole cared for her brothers as best, you know, to the best of her ability. Keep in mind, she's only t- two years yeah. older than Jesse and five yeah. at older than Cecil, the youngest brother. So that's a lot to put on oh, a kid. Yeah. It doesn't really yeah. specify what age she was when this was happening but if she's having to care for him i'm assuming i'm assuming that they're they're pretty young and in this incident food was often locked up and inaccessible to nicole and her brothers so one sunday dinner they had gone to visit their maternal grandmother and during that dinner jesse and cecil had stolen some money from their grandmother's purse in order to purchase food yeah and then after that um they were severely punished and the grandmother told priscilla that junior and cecil were no longer welcome in her home how fucking sad is that Mm -hmm. i mean that's i mean i've had some rough childhood experiences but man Yeah. yeah food locked up i don't know the circumstances i don't know i just know that that was one of the um yeah and that's a big deal 
in in as far as CVS goes. Like, you know, that that's a big deal for like having locked up food. This brings us to the day before the incident, March 1st, 2008. Before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break. So on March 1st, 2008, this is the day before the incident, Jesse Sr., Jesse Jr., and Jesse Jr.'s half-brother, William Waddell, a.k.a. Fat, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool nickname, um, went to Cecil's home located on Leicester Street to watch the University of Memphis basketball game. Goat Tigers, yes. both alumni Tigers. of University of Memphis here. Yeah, yeah. Um, at that point in time, Marissa and the five children were already there. Marissa, Marissa Williams was the fiance of Cecil Dotson, and five children were there: uh, C.J., Cedric, and I hope I'm saying this name. Right, Samario and Sanaya were Mr. Cecil Dotson's children by Marissa, his fiance. And then there was another child there, Cecil the Second, which you know is kind of confusing. But he, his mother, Cecil the Second, was a child, was also Cecil Dotson's. I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue tied here. Cecil Dotson's other child by another woman named erica smith okay so there's three cecils right yes so you have cecil dotson senior Mm -hmm. uh, his fiance marissa williams then the children you've got cecil dotson jr Mm -hmm. which is the child of marissa williams and she also has three other children by him uh, Cedric Dotson, Samario Dotson, and Sanaya Dotson. And then there is Cecil Dotson II, who is also Cecil Dotson Sr.'s child, but from another relationship. His mom was is Erica Smith. Okay. I got it now. You good? Okay. I, think so. I know. It was, it, it's tongue-tying. Um, anyways, so apparently the group was unable to watch the game that they had gone over there for apparently cecil senior's tv was unable to receive the broadcast so jesse dodson senior which was jesse and cecil's father uh left around 6 or 6 30 p.m and as he was leaving he saw his son cecil senior on the porch cleaning the grill and prepping for a barbecue and William Waddell, which was Jesse's half brother, um, AKA fat left around 10 30 or 11 PM. And both stated that Cecil was still alive at that point. And little did see Jesse senior know it would be the last time that he saw Cecil alive. This brings us to Sunday March the 2nd, 2008. Jesse Sr. had arrived at Nicole Dodson's apartment to pick up Jesse Jr. where he was living at the time. And he was going to pick him up for work because Jesse worked with his father 
Uh, they worked as painters. Uh, when Jesse Sr. arrived, Junior was not there and Nicole did not know where he was. Senior told Nicole to tell Junior to contact him if Junior wanted to keep his job. Later that evening, uh, Jesse Jr. had called Senior and stated that Jesse Jr.'s girlfriend, his girlfriend, Sheila Jones, had hidden his phone after an argument, which is why he did not call. He didn't have any explanation as to why he had missed work. So, a little, a little sketchy, sketchy. Later that evening on March the 2nd, Fat and uh, Jesse Jr. had gone to dinner. At some point, Jr. had asked Fat if uh, he wanted to pick up Cecil. Apparently, Cecil had not answered the phone after several attempts made by Fat to contact him. With no contact, the two decided not to go to Cecil's home to pick him up. So on March 3rd, 2008, uh, this was a Monday, uh, Jesse Jr. had rode to work with his father around 8 a.m. The two had stopped working that day uh, because apparently it was raining. And since he worked as a painter, maybe he was painting outside that day. I'm not totally sure. Uh, that evening, Junior, Jesse Junior, we're going to refer to Jesse Dotson Junior as Junior from now on. That and sounds great because it's getting real confusing. I'm sorry. I know there's a lot of similar names in here. <laughs> so uh, I apologize for getting tongue tied. And so we're going to refer to Junior and Senior. So that evening, Junior had called Senior, his father, stating that Nicole, his sister, wanted Senior to go by their brother Cecil's house on Lester Street to check on him. Erica, which was the lady I mentioned earlier. The who, baby mama. I yes, exactly. <laughs> um, the mother of Cecil II, which was Cecil Sr.'s two-year-old son. Uh, apparently, she had feared something was wrong. Started trying to get in contact with him early morning on March the 2nd, the day before, and had no success and later on, she in the investigation, uh, apparently she had gone that day around 3 p.m. to the house and she had knocked on the door, but no one answered. She noticed that the door was partially open. The radio was playing, but she did not see or hear anybody. So the next morning on March the 3rd, Erica had learned that Cecil was a no-show at work and no one had heard from him. So, is it senior or junior? Senior. Okay. The okay senior didn't show. Right. I got. There's so, a lot of Cecils in this story. There's a lot of Cecils. Yes. Okay. There's three of them. Okay. So, Erica was trying to get in contact with Cecil Senior because he had her their child, and uh, apparently on March third, when she had learned that Cecil Senior was a no show at work. And no one had heard from him. She began calling William Waddell numerous times at work, expressing concern. And he told her to call the police. She followed that advice, which 
If you see yeah. something or if something's right. off. I I'm mean, a- shoot, if I would have pulled up at your house and your door was unlocked and you had music playing, nobody was there, I would have been like, uh, you either answer the phone or we're exactly. gonna, I'm investigating something. Right. Well, and I mean, I'm sure this was stressful. You got to think her child and everything. So maybe, you know, sometimes people just don't want to like automatically jump to conclusions. I can, you know, I can see it being kind of chaotic. Yeah. And I mean, but yeah. If you if something feels off, usually trust your yeah. gut. If you ain't answering the phone calls and you have my child, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> Anyways, that's very true. But um, so she did end up calling the police later that day, and she waited outside uh, Cecil's home and waited on the police. So Officer Randall Davis was the first to arrive at the home. When he got there, he noted that the storm door was closed, but the interior door was partially opened. Mm. He also noticed that a person's foot, or he noticed a person's foot lying on the floor inside. I don't think he he saw, he couldn't see everything, but, you know, saw saw something sticking out. Um, As he entered the home, he was quoted as saying, he could smell the dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, this is the next day. So, depending on when this happened, I looked up the weather. And, you know, Memphis weather is yeah. crazy. Yeah. If you're from the area, then you know. And March is different. Because sometimes March is cold. Sometimes it's rainy. And then sometimes we have warm days. Mm-hmm. Well, when I looked up the weather, apparently around that time, March on March the second, the t- the temperature had reached as high as seventy five, and on March the third, as high as sixty five before discovery. Which, in most cases, is not too bad. But if you're from Memphis, it's then you know humid. Memphis humidity is a fucking bitch. So. I can't, I've never smelled decay. Um, You're a nurse. I don't know. I mean, I've smelt some nasty shit. I mean, I, I I have smelt rotting flesh. It's, it's, yeah. Well, with those kind of temperatures and the Memphis humidity, I can only imagine because you got to think the last time anybody saw them alive was march the first around 10 or 11 yeah so that's almost 48 hours yeah and like i said memphis heat and humidity is not cool so as uh officer randall davis had walked in uh four he discovered four bodies all adults they were later id'd as cecil dotson age 30, Marissa Williams, which was Cecil's fiance, age 27, Hollis Seals, age 33, and Shindri Robertson, age 22. Once Officer Randall Davis had discovered the bodies, he noticed that the four victims had were shown to have suffered multiple gunshot wounds. He did not check for vital signs. He stated it was pretty obvious they were deceased. At some point, uh, two other officers arrived to help with the search, while another officer, four total now, secured the front door. 
Officer Davis had noticed blood throughout the house and none of it appeared to be fresh. He then discovered another body as he was searching the home, the body of a child, later identified as Cecil Dotson Jr., which was Cecil Sr.'s nine-year-old son by Marissa Williams. He was discovered in the hallway bathroom with a fucking knife stuck in his head. Oh. Yeah. I told you. It's it's fucking brutal. And for, I hate to sound horrible, but for obvious reasons, Davis, Officer Davis first believed he was deceased, but then happened to notice that his eyes were twitching. This kid was still fucking alive. Mm. Yes. So once he noticed that he was still alive, uh, Officer Davis had notified the others that a survivor was found, and then he proceeded to clear the home. In down the hallway, there was a bedroom on the left side, known as Bedroom Two. <sighs> he discovered the body of four-year-old Samario Dotson who was deceased. He continued to clear the home and in another bedroom known as bedroom one, the bodies of two-year-old Cecil II and five-year-old Cedric Dotson were discovered and both appeared to be deceased. And was Cecil II, was his mom still outside? Yes. Oh, man. Yes. It's, I, I could not even fucking imagine. When I said this case was hard, it was really hard. At some point, while they were clearing the house, another officer had located two-month-old Sanaya, and she was still alive, so he carried her out of the house. Um, Officers were exiting just as the Memphis Fire Department had arrived, and Officer Davis had alerted them to the survivor in the bathroom. Um, Memphis Fire Department was instructed to check all adult victims for signs of life, but later on, um, EMT and firefighter Daniel Moore stated that he did not actually touch the adult victims because it was very clear that they were deceased. And we're looking forward to y'all joining us for part two of the Lester Street Mass Murders. Thanks for joining Murders Night Out, and we hope you have a great evening and enjoy the Super Bowl. Yeah, and you know, shout out to Anna's Closet because, <laughs> you know, we're just chilling in here. Butts are numb, but, you know, we're having a great time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah shout murder. out to all the weirdos and crazy, you know, dark souls like us and join us next time thanks guys thanks so as firefighters began you know trying to check for signs of life uh firefighter jason vos 
Blackberg. I'm sorry if I fuck that name up. Um, firefighter. We'll call him Firefighter Jason because I don't want to mess his last name up. Firefighter Jason um, and a paramedic had entered bedroom one. They confirmed that Cecil Dotson II, the two-year-old, was deceased, but Cedric was still alive. The Cedric's the five-year-old. So he immediately carried him out to the ambulance. Firefighter Jason, at that time when he was carrying Cedric out, was informed of the other deceased victim in bedroom two, which was Samario. Upon his return to inside the home, he and Moore were summoned to the bathroom to assist firefighter Herbert Henley with CJ, the victim found in the bathroom. Henley later described the cuts on CJ's face and a sawzall blade sticking out of the top of CJ's head. I know this is fucking brutal. Um, Moore and Vosberg, the two firefighters and EMTs I mentioned earlier, described it as one of the most horrible things they had ever seen. Uh, Moore observed more puncture wounds on CJ's abdomen and multiple superficial cuts to the neck. I just want to say the fact that this kid survived is a fucking miracle. Yeah. Um, I tried. Actually, I mean, I say I tried. I don't want to imagine, but I can't even imagine. And your fight or flight kind of kicks in. I mean... Like, holy cow. This kid is a survivor. Um, the three children that were the, the survivors were immediately rushed to the hospital and they were in critical condition and were not expected to survive. So with the perpetrator unknown and wanting to prevent any potential further attacks, Deputy Director of the Memphis Police Department, Tony Armstrong, and Lieutenant Walter Davidson uh, quarantined the children and did not release their identities after this attack got out. A tactical unit was assigned to guard the children and no visitors, including family, were allowed to visit or have any contact unless approved. Family members had no contact with these children after they were discovered from March 3rd to March 8th. I completely understand why they made that call, which later you'll find out it was obviously a good call. Um, But these kids just experienced. Right. And they don't have anybody to be there for them. Man, this exactly. Like at first I was mad because I was like, how can you, do that but then again i was like i i understand it was a good call because you don't know who did this and if you know the perpetrator thinks that there were no survivors and then learns there were and learns the identity who's to say he wouldn't right finish it out try to come back and finish the job and that that's hard especially for people who work in healthcare, um because you see that and i mean you want to help and you know, just thinking about all the the staff that are seeing this, that are helping these children and, um, you know, you got to keep them safe as well. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a difficult situation. I mean, I can only imagine like it's, it's a difficult situation all around. I just, 
I felt so such pain for these kids to have endured something like this and then you not know have your support there yeah I mean exactly I just yeah oh, it's 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 brutal I can mm. so back at the crime scene the investigation was underway uh, the investigation of the crime scene itself revealed that all adult victims suffered from multiple gunshot wounds and all except Mr. Seals had been shot at least once in the leg. And the crime scene was later described as appearing to be staged, which we'll get into that. So at the crime scene, uh, spent bullet kill casings, I can't speak, bullet casings were recovered and it appeared that two guns were used even though the guns were not found at the scene or thereafter two different types of gun shell casings were recovered from a nine millimeter and a 38 caliber these casings were found everywhere They were in the sofa, on the sofa, in the cushions, somewhere in the wall, and just all over the living room. And detectives also discovered that there was a jacket on the love seat. And under the jacket, a Ziploc bag was found that contained 11 more 9mm casings and 5 more 380 caliber shell casings. It appeared that... So, wait, hold up. There was a Ziploc bag mm-hmm. full of casings. Spent shell casings. So, whoever did this, trying to throw them off, maybe? You bring me to my next point. Thank you. Um, it appeared that... Detect- detectives had noted it appeared that the perpetrator had collected and intended to remove them from the scene. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what led investigators to believe this was staged was Cecil's body was found in the kneeling position in front of the sofa. He had a bag of marijuana in his left hand. Uh, he had gunshot wounds to the front of his body, one to his neck, one to the bottom of his foot, and several to his lower legs. Uh, Sergeant Anthony Mullins of the Homicide Bureau believed, as I said before, that Cecil's body had been positioned and staged after the shooting. He said that Cecil was likely facing his attacker when the first shot was fired due to the wounds suffered on the front of his body, which, you know, science, if you were not facing your attacker attacker you would those wounds wouldn't mesh right right and uh further adding to the fact that they believed it was staged mullins stated that the bag of marijuana that was found in cecil's hand was so large that cecil would have been unable to close his fingers around it and more than likely would have dropped it had he been holding it during the shooting or while attempting to defend himself. 
So he believed that the bag was placed there after Cecil's death. So what's the point of this? I'm getting there. Okay. Somebody staging the crime scene, girl. Okay. I just don't understand getting, the reason for the drugs. We, we're we getting there. Okay. We're getting there. <laughs> long story short, somebody went a long way to try to... Yeah. To try to make this look... Or to stage this. Right. Maybe a drug deal gone bad or something. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But in lieu of that... With all of that, a loaded uh, 12-gauge shotgun was found on a stack of clothing in the living room, in in the corner of the living room, and it was within arm's reach of Cecil. There was blood found on the end of the shotgun barrel, which was later identified as two-month-old Sanaya's and another victim that was found inside the home. It didn't really say who which victim's blood was on the end of it. Um, or I didn't find it. It wasn't really clear to me. So I just know that it was two-month-old Sanaya's and one of the other victims in the home. Uh, police believed that the gun had been placed there because apparently there was a lack of blood spatter on the pile of clothing. Because, you know, if... Yeah. There was, there was no blood around the shotgun, so... Oh, wow. Uh, victim Shindri Robertson was found and located in the seated position on the floor. Um, her back was to the sofa and her legs were extended. Her head was kind of caught to the side, but between the sofa and the love seat. Her shirt was pulled up and her pants were pulled down. A Detectives found a clear plastic bag that contained of what appeared to be three to five crack cocaine rocks, and it was found near her body. Oh, wow. But blood evidence revealed that the pants were pulled down after the gunshot wound to her legs, and the bag was likely a part of the staging. Mm. So I guess where it was placed, if maybe if it was on her yeah. leg or and her pants were obviously pulled down after, then... Was there any indication of um, sexual? Not that I could find. Okay. Not that I can find. I was curious. Yeah. Um, Marissa Williams, uh, Cecil's fiance, was located on the floor. And she, it said she was slumped over on Shindri. But her legs were positioned on top of Shindri's legs. And they also believed that this that Marissa's body was placed there as a state to be staged because the blood stains from Marissa were on the opposite side of the way Marissa was leaning. So it just didn't make sense with the way her body was found that her blood would be in this certain spot unless her body was moved afterwards. Um, And, she was on top of Shindri, which means that she was placed there after Shindri's death. So another indication that this was a staging. Moving on, um, they discovered Hollis Seals. Uh, his body was found in, you know, the doorway that connects the living room and the kitchen. Uh, they believed that he was shot in the area he was found 
but that he had also been moved due to uh, bloodstain evidence and the way his body was found. They said his body was found kind of with his legs on top of one another. To add on to that, um, the children uh, were discovered to have sustained multiple injuries that were consistent with sharp and blunt force trauma from kitchen knives and wooden boards. Uh, Needless to say, the entire home was absolutely bloody and horrific. I'm not going to go over all the details. Um, I will post a link to the case, uh, the court case documents in the show notes so that if, you know, listeners want to go back and read over the entire case, they can. But it was just a lot to unpack and just absolutely horrific. All right. And we're back. So while all of, you know, the regular invest, you know, investigations and, you know, processing the crime scene and everything was happening, um, the children remained hospitalized, undergoing um, neurosurgery and other life-saving procedures. Upon arrival, uh, CJ was stated to have been awake and lucid but he was suffering from obvious trauma and swelling in his forehead. In addition to the knife that was found in his head, a six to seven inch laceration was found on his scalp. He had a fractured skull, stab wounds to the back of his arm and chest, superficial lacerations across his neck, right hand, and left thumb. Cedric. Uh, arrived with significant facial trauma and was quoted as being semi-comatose upon arrival. Injuries included multiple facial fractures, including his skull and bruising on the back of his brain. This, these injuries were consistent to have been beaten with multiple boards. Uh, he also sustained a stab wound, trigger warning, ugh, a stab wound to one of his eyes his forehead, and his neck. Sanaya, the two-month-old... Ugh, this one gets me. I mean, all children get me, but two months old. Sanaya had arrived at the hospital with signs of significant head trauma, a large cut on her scalp that exposed part of her bone. Uh, The right side of her skull had been pushed or crushed with blunt force trauma. She offered, She also suffered from bruising on the brain. And in addition to all that, she had multiple stab wounds on her lower left extremities. On her lower left extremity. Okay, so with all of these injuries, did any of them survive, survive? Yes, luckily they did survive, spoiler alert, but not without paying a significant price. I was wondering about the disabilities. Um, Because when you have traumatic brain injuries like that, um, I mean, it can cause all sorts of disabilities long term. Sorry, my phone went off. Whoops. Um, 
Yeah, we'll get to, you know, the after effects and the trial and, you know, the arrest and everything in part two. Um, but yeah, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine yeah. what, you know, the, how these kids were feeling and, you know, the trauma that they had experienced in, you know, was it 48, 72 hours. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but yes, they did survive, but whoever did this is a real fucking monster. I don't know how you can do that to children. No. Like... It's one thing, and I joke around, I probably shouldn't, but, you know, it's one thing with adults, which all murder is senseless, unless you mess with my fucking kids. Don't, Agreed. Don't come at me. I'm just saying. Um, But, yeah, this is... Children, It it's hard to do cases on children, but this is... This was a really hard case, and this the injuries these kids suffered is are just unfathom unfathomable so that brings us to so while these kids were receiving medical treatment um, after the initial you know crime scene processing you know they began interviewing family and friends and other known associates trying to get some kind of lead asking the typical typical questions of who would want to harm, you know, do you know anybody that disliked them, etc. Uh, police initially interviewed Jesse Dotson Jr. Um, he was a potential witness where he described the night of the event as going over to watch the game. He, you know, naming all the people present, Marissa and the five children that we spoke of earlier. He stated that Hollis Seals arrived around 10 or 10.30 that night on March the 1st. He then stated that he, Cecil Dotson Sr., which is his brother, and Mr. Seals, their friend, left the home and drove to, quote-unquote, Frank's apartment, which was located at Highland and Spotswood Avenue. Uh, this Frank guy was later ID'd as Willie Boyd Hill. Junior stated that Seals went into the apartment alone while he and Cecil waited in the car. He also stated that sometime after a light man or a, a man with a light complexion exited the apartment and Cecil got out of the car and talked to him for a while. 30 minutes later, uh, Cecil exit, sorry, Seals, there's a lot of CCs mm -hmm. in here. Um, 30 minutes later, uh, Mr. Seals had exited the apartment and the three then went to pick up Seals' girlfriend, Shindri Robertson. Okay, that's where she comes in. Okay. Right. And she was at another apartment complex that was nearby. After they picked her up, they went to, and this is all according to Jesse Dotson Jr. This was his statement. Um, that after they left, when they picked up Miss Robertson, they went to purchase some marijuana at another another apartment complex, arriving around 11.30 p.m. You know, the typical conversations took place, meeting each other and all of that. And they eventually, eventually left the apartment and they ran into Erica Smith, which is the mother of Cecil yeah. II, uh, to... Cecil Dotson Sr.'s son. They ran into her 
in the parking lot of that apartment complex. They talked a while and then they left again. There were a few more stops. There were some busy folks that night. They were all, I didn't have time, not really have time, but I didn't have. There's, there's only so much that we can discuss. Right. There were, there were several different stops along the way. Um, They were all over the place. They were busy, you know, whatever, just driving and chit-chatting around and uh, ultimately resulting in uh, Jesse Jr. stating that he parted ways with uh, Seals, Robertson, and his brother Cecil around 2.15 or 2.30 a.m. on March the 2nd. They dropped him off at his girlfriend's apartment, the lady I mentioned earlier, Sheila Jones. Jr. said that Sheila was not there when he arrived, but that Sheila's daughter and her daughter's boyfriend were there. He stated that he and the daughter argued about her being alone, and then he went to bed and Sheila returned home around 5 a.m. And he was in bed when Sheila returned home. I'm not real sure when Sheila hit his phone. You know, he stated that earlier, but I guess maybe they fought when she got home. More interviews took place, and at some point... Uh, in one of the interviews, a local gang was implicated and it they said that Hill and Cecil were said to be a part of it. Because of this, um, this resulted in Jesse Jr. and his family being placed in protective custody because Priscilla came home one day, which was Jesse's mother, and discovered her front door had been kicked in believed to have been kicked in by the gang because they were reportedly angry about being implicated in the murders of women and children. So while all this was happening, there's a lot of things going on at the same time. Uh, While all this was happening, police were attempting to speak with CJ. And this is really fucking sad. They were, you know, and I get it. They're trying to get leads and understand what happened, but they were really trying to rush this and trying to get something because they believed CJ might die. CJ is the nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, on March the 5th, two days after they had undergone neurosurgery, then Sergeant, she's now a Lieutenant, Caroline Mason attempted to interview CJ. Um, it wasn't successful. Um, he was stated as being in and out of consciousness, cursing and quote unquote, talking crazy yeah and i mean in in that type of situation um when you when these children are or just anybody in general that's having that traumatic of a surgery they're usually you know i would assume intubated at this point you know placed on a ventilator they're probably given some sort of sedative yeah um, to help relax them during all of this so i mean those types of medications can kind of when you wake up from anesthesia mm-hmm. you know you you wake up and you're cussing and you're out of it and, oh yeah i know you know so my daughters have had like you know minor surgeries and when they woke up from anesthesia they were very much out of it um, I don't know if he was intubated or not because he was able to talk, but not really talk coherently. Apparently, he was screaming out names oh, such yeah. as Cassandra and Roderick. Uh, Cassandra, the name he yelled, was determined to be uh, the sister of Marissa Williams because he she had a sister named Cassandra. 
but further investigation concluded that Cassandra had nothing to do with the crime. Uh, police continued, they continued to try to make sense of CJ's statements, trying to find some kind of lead, lead yeah. there, you know, piece it together. Eventually, uh, Pat Lewis of the Child Advocacy Center was sent with Lieutenant Mason to talk with CJ and maybe, you know, get something out of what CJ was saying that Lieutenant Mason wasn't quite putting together. However, on March the 7th, 2008, which is five days later, everything changed. Officers received a phone call from the nurse at, a, at the hospital. They were at Le Bonheur, at that CJ was awake and rational and that police needed to come quickly to speak with him. He knew the person responsible. And that is where we leave off for part one. Yeah. So if you made it this far with us, thanks. Thank you for listening. <laughs> it's a it's a crazy ass case. That was really gnarly. And I figured that was a good spot to stop, though. But hopefully uh, you enjoyed it. Bear with us as we're working out the kinks and, you know, tweaking things. And we hope you join us again for the release of part two yeah and if you have any questions uh feel free to send it to us you know we might add that into part two mm -hmm. i know i've got questions like why was the scene staged like what is what is the purpose of that and hopefully we'll figure that out in part two maybe <laughs> you will you will you will <laughs> so i gotta guys, i gotta leave you on a cliffhanger a little bit <laughs> right 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 so yeah so if y'all have questions like i have questions feel free to send them in And we're looking forward to y'all joining us for part two of the Lester Street Mass Murders. Thanks for joining Murders Night Out. And we hope you have a great evening and enjoy the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, you know, shout out to Anna's Closet. Because, <laughs> you know, we're just chilling in here. Butts are numb, but, you know, we're having a great time. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah Shout murder. out to all the weirdos and crazy, you know, dark souls like us. And join us next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye.